Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But when they asked Stockdale, what did the people who made it through have in common? He said, we had an unshakable sense that it would turn out well. And so the paradox being the sense that, hey, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if it's going to work in the form that I, I am initially setting out to create, but there is an inevitability that if I stay in the game, if I keep showing up and creating and responding, over time, something good is going to happen. Something good is going to come. As opposed to, you know, I've got to reach this goal in this time, this way. And, and, and so it's like, you, you know, we go in with, with such a rigid thing that it's very easy to get disappointed. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to lose heart. And, and then it's over until, until you find it again. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Michael, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your work by way of uh, somebody on your publicity team who told me uh, about your book, Creating the Impossible, and this whole idea of accomplishing an impossible goal in 90 days. And, you know, as I was saying before we hit record here, that idea of a mental model to do that just appealed to me on so many levels. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices you've made with your life and your career? Well, I, I had the typical um, Massachusetts to Texas to London story, you know, like most, <laughs> mo- like, like most kids. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I grew up originally uh, about an hour outside of Boston in a town called Shrewsbury, um, went to school in, in Texas and then moved to London, met my wife like three months after I got there and stayed for 14 years. And, and so I think it, it, what shaped me in a way was being in such contrasting environments um, because it, there's just very different attitudes towards a lot of things between those three places. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what did you notice in particular? I, I grew up in Texas as well. So I, I wonder like what sorts of culture shock did you experience from each place that you went to? Well, I think for me, when I first moved to Texas and my family, you know, I've still got family down there. And so, you, you know, even though I'm a, I'm a Yankee, uh, I'm actually a Red Sox, but you know, we'll, we won't quibble, but, but it, it, there was, a, it took me a while to get that there was just a different rhythm. There was a different pace, which things went at, which was not problematic once I realized it. But like I, I felt like everything was broken there. And then I went to London where attitudes towards things and pace of, 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 of play was completely different again. And in a funny way, London was where I felt most at home. Uh, you know, I, I never quite felt like I fit in in uh, in Massachusetts or Texas. But when I, I hit London, I was like, my people, 
Mm -hmm. What impact uh, did moving around so much have on your uh, social relationships in your life? Because I I can relate. Like I'm the kid who basically grew up in Australia, Canada, Texas, and California by the time I finished high school. And, you know, they're both negative and positives uh, to the social impact that that's had on my life. And I wonder what that's been on on the relationships that you've had in your life and your friendships. Well, interestingly, I think... And I don't. I've I've never thought about it in terms of being to do with how I grew up, though it could well be connected. I, I've I've always had two or three extraordinarily great friends. Yeah. At a time, and most of them are, are have been in my life for thirty plus years. So my wife and I just had our thirtieth anniversary last week. My best friend and I, who was best man at our wedding, have been going for a weekly. We call it the the talk on the walk for. 33 years now started in London and, uh, and has traveled with us around the world. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's sort of less friendships, but deeper and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of acquaintances. Yeah. What do you think, uh, allows for the depth of the kind of friendship that sustains over 30 years? Because I, you know, I had uh, Lydia Denworth here who wrote this beautiful book on friendship and we were talking about the sort of psychology of friendship. She said, you know, we've done all sorts of research and, you know, intimate relationships like family relationships, but friendship was one of those that nobody had ever done work on. And she wrote this breathtaking book on it. Um, and this is something I wonder as somebody who's moved around, who's lost touch with friends, my, some of my friendships have changed over time, but like, I, you know, I think that was one thing I, I felt like I missed from not having been in one place for so long in my life is, is these sort of friendships that have lasted 30 years. What do you think leads to that? Like what sustains that kind of a relationship? Well, I have a, 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 a very unfounded, but I like it anyways, theory, which is that quantity time in some ways matters more than quality time. Mm-hmm. That there is simply something that happens when you spend enough time with another human uh, that, that it, but, there were there were these ski boots when I was a kid. They were they were called PKs, and they were, you know, advertised as the most comfortable ski boot you'll ever wear. And the way they worked is you you'd put you 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 you'd pick out like an outer shell of the ski boot that you liked the look of, but then you'd put these little plastic bags on your feet and stand in goop, and the goop would form to your foot, and after about an hour, it would be solid enough that they'd then move it into the shell, and so. You could, you, you could sort of, those boots were literally formed around you. And I think friendships, uh, are, are, have that aspect to them that w- you don't necessarily need to, once, once the, once the, the mold has set, you don't necessarily need to be in touch regularly at all. That's those great moments we have where it's like, God, it's like, we haven't seen each other in years, but it's like, we've never been apart. Mm-hmm. That's the payoff. But early on, it really is forged in time. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's funny because Lydia mentioned that, right? She said frequency matters a lot. Like how often do you interact with somebody, that kind of stuff. And, and what I also wonder is, you know, why certain friendships come to an end, you know, with age, like we go through different phases of our lives. Like I know for a fact that there's certain people that I was very close to at some point in my life where I just don't feel like I relate to them anymore. Like what is that? What, what causes that? Well, hopefully evolution. <laughs> Like, you know, in, in other words, generally speaking, when that happens, it's, it, it's, it's one of the two people has woken up to another level and it, it's not necessarily you, <laughs> but it can be. And, and so, so the, the truth is, you, you know, when we see life from the same kind of place as somebody, you know, we're going to get on. 
but at certain points in life, we just have different thinking and a different, we live in a different world. And I always remember, you, you know, Tom Lair, the, um, the, was he a Harvard professor who did funny songs, um, you know, political and, uh, be prepared is in, in the atom bomb song. And he, he, he was big in the fifties. I don't know. It was before my time, but I love, I loved his, his music. And he stopped doing music during the Vietnam war because he said, it's not funny anymore. Now that, that, that kind of shift, and I don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but that's a game changer because suddenly anybody who finds it funny, well, how can you find this funny? Um, now it can go the other way where you suddenly find more things funny <laughs> and, and, and you find a new friend group that way too. Yeah. Well, I think you brought up pace, which to me is, is really one of the things that's fascinating. You know, you think about sort of Texas, you know, I don't know when you were in Texas and then and sort of London and, you know, where we're at now, where the world moves at, you know, sort of breakneck speed, we're all kind of sitting in our houses, you know, disconnected from the world with, you know, technology being our main means of communication. Um, it, and I feel like in a lot of ways, friendship has sort of taken a back seat, you know, and the result of which is like a loneliness epidemic. And part of that, I think, is pace. Uh, so I wonder, you know, like how pace impacts social relationships in each of the locations that you were in, you know, and, and what you think about this whole situation we find ourselves in now, particularly because I know you mentioned, you know, you have, uh, you know, children who are in their 20s. Well, it's been really interesting watching their friendships deepen. So I'm pretty convinced that a, a lot of the people that my, my son and daughter have been, you know, my, my son's roommates and his, his socially, social justice book club, and that, that, that they're going to have a bond that's going to last a very long time because they have nothing but time to explore together and learn together. My, my um, daughter's been on the FaceTime with one of her friends in New York who, who kind of moved to New York City like two days, got a job, and then they quarantined. So like she'd been there less than a week and everything fell apart. And, and they've gone from pretty good friends to my daughter actually as of yesterday is moving to New York and they're getting an apartment together. So there's something about having more time that does definitely, again, it's that... Frequency, it sounds like um, your, your, your guest talked about it as, where you have time to really connect beyond the surface. Like a lot of initial, I, I always think of it as the difference between pop songs that you love them the first time you hear them, but the more you hear them, the less you like them. And then there are some songs where you don't really necessarily love it the first time you hear it, but the more you listen, the better it gets. Deep friendship is like the second kind of song. It's a connection that evolves beyond personal beliefs. It, it, it evolves beyond um, personal ideologies even. Whereas surface friendships are people who think like me. Yeah. So one other aspect I want to ask about, you mentioned that you and uh, your wife have been married for 30 years. So, you know, this is just out of personal curiosity. What makes something last like that? Because I think that, you know, this is one of those things like there's just such a mystery, like particularly um, for somebody like me who's single, I was like, oh, okay, you've made a relationship last 30 years. Like, you know, and and obviously, you know, I was reading this book called The Molecule of More, where they're like, you know, people think that this sort of infatuation type love that you feel at the beginning is going to last forever, but it eventually goes to normal. So, you know, having made it through 30 years, what is it that makes that work? 
I mean, interestingly, given the way we've been talking, I think friendship is a huge part of it. Uh, it you know, it's funny. Last year for our anniversary, we went to um, to Vegas, and uh, for some reason, because I don't think we were advert, we weren't like wearing matching T-shirts, going, "It's our anniversary," but we just bumped into a lot of people who found out that it was our anniversary and wanted to know our secret. And and my answer was, um, marry somebody you actually like. <laughs> Which, Which surprisingly right? is not the main criteria for a lot of people. Um, um, but my, I like my wife's answer as well, which I think she might've catched from Dr. Laura or something, but it was, you know, choose wisely, treat kindly, which I liked as well. Cause I think that's the thing is it is a, a long-term romantic relationship is forged in a friendship. And, and, and I don't know, I, you know, I've been, uh, I've been with Nina most of my life. So it's like, I don't have a, a lot of com- personal comparisons. But it seems to me that the relationships that I know, not that just are long, you can stay together out of spite, but you know, where, where the couples actually still like each other, it's because they always did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So what in the world led you down the path that you're on today? Because, you know, it, it, I think the thing that I find pretty consistently is that the trajectory of every single person I talk to have, they all have one thing in common and that their path to where they're at is nonlinear. And so I wonder, you know, what kinds of career advice did you get growing up? Like, what were you taught about making your way in the world? <laughs> well, I, the, 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 my first memory of what I was taught was um, that I was supposed to be a forest ranger. Like I took one of those aptitude tests and, um, and that, that was what came up as my number one, uh, job. So partly I think what I took from that is nobody has a clue. Um, it, 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 it was really interesting for me. There was never a plan. And, and I guess that fits with, with, with what you've seen. So I, I trained as an actor. Um, but before that, I thought I wanted to be either a lawyer or a sportscaster because um, I loved arguing and I loved sports. And uh, and then, you know, I got into acting and, and what I do where I, you know, now where I, I write and I, I teach and I coach and, and, and all of that stuff really just started as a hobby. Like it was a background thing, not a career path that at some point, I, I remember one year it was like 1994. I set a goal of working 365 days as an actor, which is really hard to do, but I did it. Um, I managed to get a couple of long running shows that overlapped and I was working at the BBC and doing a lot of radio and stuff like that. And I got to the end of the year and realized for the first time, oh, I'm, I miss my hobby work. Like I miss the stuff that I thought of as, well, I'll just do that to make money while I'm trying to get my career going. And so, you know, I had these two sort of parallel careers uh, where I was a a reasonably successful actor. I I had a sitcom in uh, in Wales. I'm famous in Wales Uh, (laughs) called Satellite City. And I played a New Age American guy, which, you know, was hard for me, but I I pulled it off and and teaching. And and I I I remember that this one year where I started writing comedy. And I was writing um, for a show called 30 Something Else uh, that was, uh, again, on the BBC. And I told my wife, this is what I'm, I, I, I found it. This is what I'm meant to be doing. And then did not write another word for six years. That show finished. 
But then once I started um, in 2000, when we moved from London to LA and I started writing again, I, I have not stopped um, since then. So it's been very much this sort of the path I thought I was supposed to be on and then the path I was actually on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I think that that's fascinating. I mean, there are two really big things here that I, I want to tease apart. One was you, you mentioned that this thing was just a hobby. And I think that 
one of the beautiful things that the internet and technology has given us is this access to sort of, you know, unlimited resources and technology and the ability to execute ideas faster than ever before. But the the sort of negative consequence of that is, you know, people don't have hobbies. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, I wrote about this in my last book. There's an article, uh, you know, on the New Yorker about the artist way of the age of self-promotion, um, where the author basically said, you know, like we've kind of created a culture in which, you know, if you have an amazing voice, you have to start a podcast. If you have, you know, great writing skills, start a newsletter, like you have to monetize your hobby. Um, and, you know, I think that that paradoxically has also created a lot of misery for a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't have a million you know, people doing, you know, listening to this or whatever it is. So as a result, it's not worth doing. Um, so how do we find the balance, I guess, of fulfillment and ambition when we're pursuing things like this? Well, I, th- I think the, the biggest thing that I see people suffer from is premature practicality. That they, 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 they sort of, <laughs> they won't, try something unless they can see how it's going to pay off somewhere. And, and that's a, that's a killer because a, you have no idea. Like I, I had a, I had in a weird way, always had this idea of a life trajectory where I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to do much in my twenties. And then in my early thirties, I'm going to kind of find my way. And then 35 to, to 40, 38 is going to be a climb. And then 38 to four. And I had this sort of idea, but I assumed because it was what I was doing, that it would be as an actor. And oddly, my life has pretty much followed that trajectory, but in, in, in ways and fields that weren't even on my radar when I was first thinking about it. So like even the writing. So I started writing a, a daily newsletter in 2000 and um, you know, I, maybe they were already called blogs. I didn't even know what a blog was then. And I had no intention of reaching anybody. I just had so many ideas in my head. And I noticed that if I didn't get them out, I didn't get new ones. And so I just literally would write down an idea a day. And I started out sending it to 12 people back in the UK. And before I knew it, it was 200 people. And then it, it grew from there. But it wasn't until my son said to me, and I think we were about two or three years into it, dad, how many people, you know, read your, your thing? And I said, I know at that time it was probably like 10, 15,000. And he said, if you charged each of them a dollar, you'd be rich. And it was really funny because it had never even occurred to me. Like literally I had not once thought about that. It was a, a business move. And so by the time I started looking at it from a business perspective, I was really grounded in it. And I, and the other way that I see people get in their own way is they think they're supposed to make their living from doing what they love. And more often than not, because there's a learning curve in business, it winds up kind of killing the business and the love. Whereas, you know, I, I, I kind of love the patronage model. You know, the old, in the, in the olden days, you know, artists had patrons. That's how they survived. They didn't, they didn't make their living selling their wares. And, and, and there's something about even like seeing a day job as a patron, like a lot of, a lot of artists, a lot of creatives that I work with feel like failures if they have to take a, a non in their field gig. But for me, it's like, it's no different than, than an artist having a patron. It's just your, 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 your job is your patron. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes I ever heard was from this woman named Diana Valentine. She said, treat your day job as the first angel investor in your business. Beautiful. 
That's I, I, it's exactly how I, I I think about it. I mean, I remember a guy coming on a course, and uh, you know, he, he signed up, and the 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 next day he phoned and he said, "Right, I quit my job. What do I do next?" And I was like, "See if they'll give you your job back," because it's like we we put an incredible pressure on something before it's ready to support it. When we when we try and jump in and go right, I need to. Um, I, I remember working with a guy who was a a film critic for one of the big newspapers and he wanted to write his own screenplay and you know he'd he'd talked about it for a long time and part of why you know I was working with him was to get him to actually do it and he did and the movie came out eventually but what what I remember was the day he came in and said I hate being a film critic and I I just looked at him and said no you don't <laughs> he said what do you mean and I said you love being a film. You, you absolutely love it. You just think you need to convince yourself that you hate it to get yourself to do this other thing you also want to do. And once he saw that, actually, it got a lot easier because he stopped trying to do it however he'd made up you're supposed to do it and just did a bunch of things that he really enjoyed doing and got good at them. No, yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, I... I, I once said, you know, like I was really fortunate that um, when I started this project, I had a day job and I was I didn't have the pressure to earn a living from it. So I think that was one of the big things that actually allowed it to sort of have, um, you know, the impact that it did, because I wasn't constantly thinking about, you know, metrics, which I, I think can often get the way we'll, we'll get into that when we start talking about uh, creating the possible. There's one other thing you said earlier where uh, you made this distinction between what you thought you should do and what you were doing. And you actually acted on the thing that you sort of felt that you were you know made to do. Why do you think people ignore that sort of moment in their lives so often? I think it's a couple of things, but but they're probably both fear. Um, um, you know, sometimes fear masquerading as good taste and sensibility. But but one is we're so busy minded we don't notice. Like <laughs> it's it's the number of times I've I've sat down with a client and and it is screamingly obvious to me within half an hour what they're meant to be doing, and 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 they literally don't notice because their mind is constantly thinking and scheming and planning and trying to work it out, and there's no listening. It, it's like the voice in their head is talking all the time, but nobody's listening. And so I think that that is part of it is we we drown out our inner knowing with with the brass band of thinking. Um and then I think the other reason is good old fashioned fear. My 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 the the first story I wrote which was part of the pitch uh for my my first book was uh called a cab driver named Adolf. And I'd been in Chicago performing at a comedy festival. Uh, doing sketch comedy with a troupe that I was with in LA, and we 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 didn't bomb, but it wasn't a great night. <laughs> and so I'm getting a a cab back around midnight to a, uh, a friend's house who lived in Chicago, and it started to snow. And I'd been living in SoCal, and I was like, "Oh my God, snow! I love snow!" And the cab driver slammed on the brakes and just glared at me, and I was like, "Oh crap! What have I done?" Um, and he just started telling me his life story. And he was from Ghana. His name was Adolf. And he had come to America to create a better life for his family. And he'd been sending money home. And he'd put his kid brother and kid sister through school. And, you know, he had a 
a story. You know, we we wound up pulled over as snow piled outside the cab, and he did turn the meter off. But you know, we spent probably two and a half hours in the cab. You know, from like midnight till two in the morning, and and I remember asking him what his dream was, and he did this thing that I, I I've seen so many times where he looked off into the distance as if he was seeing something in his mind's eye, then kind of shook his head and said, "I don't have a dream," and. You know, I I called him on it and I said, "No, you. What was that thing you were looking at in your head a minute ago?" And he kind of confessed that his dream was to learn to build houses the way that they built them in America, so that he could go back to his village in Ghana and build houses. And and when we talked about it, it was just it was so implausible to him. It was so impossible to him that almost like a defense mechanism. He shut it off. He shut himself off from it because it would just be too painful to not do it if he let himself want to. And that's in many ways the, you know, where creating the impossible came out of is in, instead of trying to convince people that the dreams that they already have are possible, just going, well, what if it didn't matter? What if your opinion about whether it's possible or not was irrelevant to what you decided to do? So I love that. Uh, I want to do start going deep into this whole idea of uh, impossible. There's one thing I want to ask you about, you know, from acting, and this is something I always ask creative people from who you know have different art forms in mind. What did you learn about discipline, habits, routine, and ritual from your time as an actor? Not as much as you'd hope. <laughs> I mean, that what I what I think I had going in that was actually a big contribution. Uh, to my career was uh, I had a level of recognition that pretty much the most important things that you can do in any job are show up on time and do what you say you will. It's just, I didn't realize that would turn out to be a competitive advantage. Like I just thought everybody did that because that's how my dad, <laughs> so it was totally yeah. accidental. I just, that's my dad was like that. And so I grew up like that. I don't even remember him ever telling me that it's just well that's what you do you show up when you say you're going to show up and you do what you say you're going to do or you fix it and and so when i came out to i remember being kind of shocked when i when i came out to la one of the first times and this actor just was like 25 minutes late for a rehearsal which back in london would have gotten him fired immediately and he said oh sorry dude i flaked and the director just went oh okay and i went wait that's a legitimate excuse now <laughs> but the the thing is, is sometimes this this idea of oh i have an artistic temperament just means oh i i can't be bothered and and y y it doesn't matter in fact in some ways the more creative the field the more the basic disciplines of any other job are helpful and my son actually said to me once you know he's 25 now and when, when, uh, when he finished college, we went on a road trip and hung out for a while. And he, he said that probably the thing that he learned from me that has, had served him best was that, was that simple idea that showing up on time and doing what you said you would, would turn out to be a competitive advantage. It's kind of funny how something that simple really works. But I, I think to this David Brooks quote, I read somewhere, I don't remember what it was, where he said, you want to work like an accountant, but think like an artist. Beautiful. That's, that's, that's way better than what I just said. <laughs> but, but the well, same point. 
Yeah, it is interesting because it's just, you know, I think that people have this idea of sort of, you know, creative inspiration and these moments of stuff. And it's like, no, it's about doing really mundane, repetitive tasks on a daily basis. And they don't have to be massive, but they add up over time, Uh, which, you know, I think makes a really perfect segue into talking about this whole idea of creating the impossible. But I think I want to start by sort of, you know, thinking about this in terms of like right now, given what we're in the midst of, given the pandemic, people are suffering. I think for a lot of people, the last thing on their mind is, let me go try to do something impossible. Let me try to get through this mess without, you know, losing everything. Um, so how do you how do you address that? Like, I mean, because I know somebody has to be thinking that. Well, the, 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 the starting point for that is is recognizing the difference between creating and reacting. Like we can all react. I mean, social media is great for that. But but nothing really changes through reaction. I mean, it might in the short term, but not long term. And so if you're taking on something that, you, you know, one of the ways I define impossible is that you, you can't see how it could happen in the time frame that you've allotted. It's just like it, that there's no way that that's going to happen. And, and the, the, the problem with, with, with reaction is there, there's no time for anything to develop. So creating if you start to see that creating is a response to the world then then it doesn't seem like well how do i take time to create when i'm caught it's like no now is the perfect time to create because normal's gone like you know everyone's going when's it going to get back to normal it isn't there'll be a new normal but if you allow the old normal to die what do you want to create what kind of a world do you want to be a part of creating? What kind of a life do you want to create? What do you want to create within that life? And it doesn't matter. The beauty of creativity is it literally does not matter the circumstances because they're just the raw materials of the creation. So if I want to create the impossible, you know, I, how about a, a world where racism doesn't exist? Like that sounds impossible. Let's do that. It doesn't have to be it. Now, a lot of a lot of people's goals are a lot more personal or about their businesses and things like that that they take on with their projects. But there's no um there's there's no limit to creativity. There's no edges. There's nowhere where it doesn't apply. There's nowhere where it isn't relevant. Well, so I think that one thing I I you know, appreciate was that you also kept it pretty real in this book. You, you actually talk about the difference between pipe dreams and possibilities. So, um, you know, I had a a mentor here who, one of the things he said is that one of our biggest mistakes is we set, you know, uh, we use sort of outliers like the Oprah's and, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's and, you know, Michael Phelps of the world as our sort of role models for success, because he said, you know, that sounds, it's an inspiring story. And he said, in doing that, we, you know, overlook the probability of a goal and focus entirely on the possibility of it. Like you and I both know, no matter how hard you and I work, even if we say, you know, the impossible dream, I'm going to go play basketball with LeBron James in the next NBA game. That's never going to happen. I'm a scrawny Indian person. Um, you know, like I'm not I'm making sure, it to the sure NBA. Right guy. We're, 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 yeah, <laughs> we're out. We're out by all accounts. But, you know, so I, I want to make, you know, sort of that distinction because I think that this is something I've thought a lot about is that 
part of the danger in my mind of the the sort of you know uh, personal development culture, and you know I, I'm sure that I perpetuate it. Like this show is an example of bringing models of possibility, but um, is that we we tend to often have delusional optimism about this. So I want you to expand on this idea of the difference between pipe dreams and possibilities. Well, see, I think delusional optimism is our friend, um, but I would distinguish it a little bit differently. I I I I, I make a distinction between hope and wishful thinking. Like, I think hope is awesome. Hope is, I don't know if you ever read the Lord of the Rings books, because it, it doesn't come across as much in the movies as in the books, but all of the magic that the white wizards do is hope. They give hope and people find this strength inside them and this persistence inside them and this resilience inside them. And all of the dark magic is hopelessness, is discouragement. And, and I think that's very true. Once you put a form on it, on hope, it becomes wishful thinking. It becomes, um, it's again, it's premature practicality. So the, have you, have you heard that? Well, it doesn't matter if you have, <laughs> I guess I'm not just talking to you, but do, do you know the story of, um, the Stockdale paradox? So in, um, it, it, I first read it in a book called good to great by Jim Collins. And apparently the highest ranking U S military uh, personnel who was in uh, a prisoner of war during Vietnam was this Admiral James Stockdale. And a lot of the prisoners in the, the Hanoi Hilton was the movie they made about, about that prison it credited him with kind of organizing everybody and helping people get through what was a, you know, a horrific uh, experience. And in this interview, he was being asked, could you tell who was going to come through okay, or even better than they went in and who was going to get destroyed by it. And he said, yeah, we had a name for the people who weren't going to make it. We called them the optimists. And he said they, they would say, well, we'll be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go and they were still there. So they'd get discouraged. And then they go, well, no, we'll, we'll be out by, by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go, oh, well, we'll be out by my birthday. We'll be out by the 4th of July. We'll be out. And each time they'd get more and more discouraged until they became hopeless. And then, you know, hopelessness is fertile soil for a lot of really crappy things. But when they asked Stockdale, what, what was it, what did the people who made it through have in common? He said, we had an unshakable sense that it would turn out well. And so the, the paradox being the, the, the sense that, Hey, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if it's going to work in the form that I, I am initially setting out to create, but there is an inevitability that if I stay in the game, if I keep showing up and creating and responding over time, something good is going to happen. Something good is going to come as opposed to, you know, I've got to reach this goal in this time, this way. And, and, and so it's like, you, you know, we go in with, with such a rigid thing that it's very easy to get disappointed. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to lose heart. And, and then it's over until, until you find it again. Yeah. Well, for the sake of a practical example, I'm going to be incredibly selfish here. Let's take an impossible goal and cool. walk it through this framework. Um, let's say that I wanted to double the size of the number of people listening to this show. Um, mm -hmm. You know, 
in 90 days. Now, you know, there are a lot of things in here, and I know you write about some of these that are kind of control being one of them. So where would we start? I mean, because to me, it's like, wow, that that's I love the ambition, I love the potential of what that could lead to, but I also am like, okay. That's that's a pretty damn, you know, like, again, you know, if I didn't accomplish double, but ended up almost near there, I would be thrilled. But where would we start with something like that? Well, generally speaking, there, (laughs) it's like, okay, that's what I want to do. And then the simple fact of having called it out, the simple fact of going, okay, yep, I'm in, I'm, I'm, let's do it. Let's double, let's double your listenership in the next 90 days. You literally are going to start having all sorts of ideas from nowhere about reach that are going to be almost random. You're going to read your emails differently without, not on purpose differently, looking for, oh, I must read my emails to find ways of growing, but you'll just, different things will jump out of them. You'll start seeing opportunities where you know, now you just read emails. You'll, you'll be in, in, you'll have a, an impulse to go to a, for a walk at a weird time and you'll bump into somebody on the walk who knows. I mean, it is extraordinary. The, the, the weird and wonderful ways that, that impossible projects unfold, but they start with deciding. Yeah, I'm in. It really is that simple. And I'm in, even though I don't know how, even though I don't even really believe it's possible, I'm in. And the great thing is, and, and I think people miss this, and it's such a, a, a help for creativity, is, is, is if you can't win, there's no pressure. Like, I would probably do pretty well for me in a basketball game against LeBron James because there's not one ounce of me that thinks <laughs> I can beat him. So I'm going to have a blast. I'm going to try stuff. I'm going to I'm going to do stupid things because it's not like I'm going to win. Yeah. But that very creativity. There was a, a story I read in a book years ago. There, there was a book by the the guys who were Clinton's uh, Bill Clinton's campaign managers back in '92, and they talked about how the big shift in the campaign was they they got to the point where there was just no chance they were going to get the nomination, and so they went, okay, well we're at this point. We, we, we probably can't win. So let's just try stuff. So they, they, their policy had been, they would have these meetings every morning and people would have to pitch their ideas to, to raise awareness and to get votes. And y- your idea would have to get through the gauntlet of the, the creative team before it would be actioned. And they just said, let's flip it on the head. Unless we can talk you out of an idea in the hour, do it. And he said it was extraordinary. He said, because a lot of the ideas were crap, but they were now doing 10 things a day instead of one. Mm. And a few of them worked and yeah. it turned the tide of the campaign. And it's, it's that same dynamic is if I don't go in thinking, okay, if I work hard enough, I can do this. See that, that that's again, that's why impossible is supposed to difficult. Like mm-hmm. if I just think it's difficult, I'm going to try and do it logically and through hard work. Yeah. But if I know it's impossible, then that's out the window. No amount <laughs> of hard work is going to pull this off. Yeah. So, so that's not an option. So I'm forced to play. I'm forced mm-hmm. to try stuff. I'm forced yeah. to kind of go, well, okay, that doesn't sound stupid. Let's see what happens. 
And it's amazing how often those, well, let's see what happens things turn out huge. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's funny. My, my first book uh, was called You Can Have What You Want. And it became the number one bestseller in the United Kingdom above the Lincoln lawyer. And I was a complete unknown. Uh, I'd been doing it for 15 years, but nobody knew who I was. I, 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 I had decided I was going to do it the right way. And I spent a bunch of money on, on um, PR and media and it didn't do anything. It didn't, didn't really move the needle. And then I had a client who, um, who, who called me and said, Hey, um, you know, my uncle has a radio show. And I was like, no. And, and, and he said, yeah, you, you know, I was talking to him about you. He'd love to have you on. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I go in and, you know, he's a really uh, lovely guy named Johnny Walker. And he used to host the uh, drive time show in the UK. And, you know, they only had four channels. So <laughs> it was, it was a, it had a big, a big listenership and it turned out to be his next to the last show. And he was a complete gent. You know, he brought me a cup of tea. He chatted to me. He invited me back to his home for sort of a party afterwards for the show. He thanked me for the work I'd done. And, and, and then the, the, uh, the red light comes on. We're on air. And he goes, so my next guest is Michael Neal. He's another one of these shiny-toothed Americans here to tell us what we're supposed to do with our lives. Michael, why should I or any of my listeners listen to a single word you have to say? <laughs> and I just thought it was funny. Like, I was just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just said to him, Hey, Johnny, I, I'm not on a mission from God. I, I've learned some really cool stuff that helped me and seems to help a lot of my clients. And I could share it with your listeners. Or if you're not really interested, the didgeridoo guy who was on just before me was really good. And we wound up <laughs> talking for an hour about nothing, but yeah. from that. And by the end of the week, I was I was the number one book in the, in the United Kingdom. Now I'd even started a blog called project bestseller and I'd, I'd had this brilliant plan and I, I, I kind of was almost disappointed. I had to abandon my plan because it, it happened in about 16 days. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. You think about, you know, um, that cause, uh, there's a guy named Victor Chang who wrote a book called extreme revenue growth. And, and, you know, the very end of the book, like the, the book is incredibly tactical, but the very end of the book, he actually talks about, you know, the biggest mistake he sees his clients make. And he basically says, all right, he's like, look, he's like, you can focus on 50% growth or 500% growth. But he said, if you focus on 50, he said, you're going to filter out anything that would lead to 500% just by default mm -hmm. in terms of the way you're thinking. And you'll, as you're hearing me say that, I was like, oh, I guess I could ask people like, Hey, just share this episode with one person, if you're listening and you've been listening to a long time, like, I wonder how quickly that would, you know, start to create a ripple. Like if we, I mean, we did that for a while and it's kind of, um, you know, one of those things where uh, you're right. You like now it's kind of like, all right, well, if this is impossible, anything is fair game. It, it's so free. If you, if, when people get a taste of the freedom of starting from, oh, I'm going to bomb. Like I, I remember, I remember doing a conference. I was invited to speak at a conference in Europe with Marianne Williamson, and I it was a big Marianne Williamson fan. I'd never met her, but I, I loved uh, her book, A Return to Love. And uh, this was long before she ran for president. Um, and and everything about the setup was wrong. Like I could tell it was. I got a a, a, a funky vibe about it, but everything in me wanted in, and and. I remember being interviewed and not unusually, they didn't use the interview for, for promoting the, um, 
the conference where they said, so what are you most excited about for this conference? And I said, well, I have a feeling it's going to be a train wreck, but I kind of really want to be there to watch what happens when it comes off the rails. And I meant it. Like, I didn't think it was going to work, but I really was excited about seeing what happened. Mm. And there's so, so much creativity that comes with that freedom. So there's something interesting that I think it comes about this, right? When we're talking about setting what is an impossible goal with the freedom of like, okay, I know this is impossible, but how do you manage not to get attached? Because I think that's where you tend to get into real trouble where you're like, oh, uh, my favorite quote ever from an artist I admire was from this Indian composer named A.R. Rahman. And A.R. Rahman is way more famous than most people realize. Like he sold more albums than Britney Spears and Madonna. He's this beautiful series on Netflix. Like he's the go-to guy in Bollywood for, uh, you know, uh, film scoring. Yeah. And he said, when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. Hmm. How do you cultivate that lot, you know, willingness to detach from expectations? Well, I, I, I have found the most helpful thing. Um, and actually uh, thinking about it, there's two. The, the one I was going to say that, that is incredibly helpful is seeing pressure and stress, in fact, self-consciousness of any form, are the ultimate enemy of creativity. So I have a, a, a pretty low tolerance. I wouldn't say zero tolerance, though I'd love to have a zero tolerance for pressure and stress. It, it is my absolute warning sign that I am off track. Now, what happens when you start to get attached to the outcome is you start feeling pressure and stress. But because pressure and stress, I, I, I'm not interested. I don't want to play. Then it, I'm not enticed by it. It's like there are certain foods that you know are bad for you, but you love them. So you kind of are in this constant struggle with them. But if there's a food that just tastes horrible to you, it doesn't take willpower to not eat it. Mm -hmm. Pressure and stress taste horrible to me. So I have no interest in anything that, that creates more of them. So that's a big part of it. But I think the other thing that I, I have found helpful and I've seen is we are terrible at predicting the future. You know, we, I, I used to host a show on Hay House Radio for many years, like 14 years. And, and Hay House was known for its psychics. So Sylvia Brown and that, that uh, uh, John Holland. And, 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 and I, I got to meet a lot of these guys and they were really good. Like I, I don't, I didn't even know if I believed in it, but I was very impressed with them. But I noticed with interest that they, they didn't play the lottery. They didn't, uh, you know, get involved in, like, even though they were acknowledged world experts at predicting the future, they didn't back their predictions to that extent. And I thought, man, we all act like our predictions of the future are really good. Oh, I know how this is going to turn out, so I'm not going to bother doing it. We are terrible at predicting the future. One of one of my favorite moments ever on a on a training that I was running, I had a guest coach in named uh, Dr. George Pransky, and he he was working with this writer who had writer's block, and 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 he, he, he George seemed to not get what writer's block was to the point where I almost interrupted the session to kind of explain it to him. <laughs> And, and, and the, the writer kept saying, getting more and more frustrated that George didn't get why this was a problem. And he finally said, but George, I've been working on the same chapter for seven years. And we all laughed, but George just looked at him and said, well, what makes you think that that's about anything other than you being terrible at predicting how long something is going to take? 
<laughs> and I swear to God, all of us had a breakthrough. Like that guy did go on. It took about another year and a half, but he wrote a book, became a bestseller. And he's, he, you know, so it, it, it worked quote unquote, but, but actually it was impactful for all of us because we just all kind of realized in our own way, man, we spend a lot of time predicting the future and then making decisions based on what we made up. Mm, wow. So I, I want to ask you about two um, concepts from the book. Um, one was, you know, what you call the flywheel of creation. And the other was this idea of KPIs in terms of measuring your progress, because I think that this is one of the things I see over and over. Like when I, when people ask me about developing writing habits, all this, I have to measure their progress in a way that they can control it. So it's like, don't measure whether you sold a million books, measure whether you showed up today. Well, I think that's a, that, that's, that's a big, a, a big thing is finding finding what your um, unconscious measure of progress is, which you're probably using to beat yourself up, which is, I don't have a million followers yet. You know, mm. I, I, you know that's, that's, there's usually some variation on that. I'm not making a million dollars yet. I don't have a six-figure business yet. I don't have a blank yet. And, and, and as you say, starting to see, well, what lets me know, and I think of it more in terms of on track, off track, than progress. So I know I'm on track when I'm engaged. I know I'm on track when it's, it's actually, I'm, I'm actually doing stuff. I know I'm on track when I have hope. I know I'm on track when I'm somewhat lighthearted about it. I know I'm off track when it starts all looking really serious and important. And like, if I don't do it, something terrible is going to happen. I, I know I'm off track if I keep talking about it, but not doing anything. I, I know I'm off track if I have to keep reminding myself that I'm doing this. And, and so you start to kind of find your already existing markers for on track and off track. And that becomes you know, the measure of progress. And, and, and if you, whereas if you get too distinct with it, then it becomes quickly an expectation. That's back to that premature practicality idea. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I love that. Um, so one other thing that you talk about, uh, which I, I felt it would be impo irresponsible to leave our conversation without talking about is the value of money, which I think is highly relevant right now when people feel really stretched for it, right? You talk about the fact that money is great for buying things, but it can't buy much else. Well, when people are having trouble keeping the lights on, even food on their table, buying things is pretty damn important. Um, so you like, you know, where, how do, how do we deal with that? So I, I I've got a friend, he's, he's actually uh, my best friend, the guy I was talking about earlier that we've been, we've, we've hung out for 30 plus years and he makes his living or had been making his living as a, a, a photographer and an actor. And, uh, and he'd gotten into making videos and things like that more recently, music videos. And when, when the quarantine hit, you know, and he's got a young family and, uh, he, he freaked out because Basically, everything that he knew to do to make a living was clearly not going to be happening much over the next indeterminate period. And, and so he went through a panic and, and he, 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 he told me that the, the thing that got him out of it was he, he was talking to a, a, a mutual friend of ours and they said, do you really think scaring the crap out of yourself before thinking about it is going to help? Hmm. 
And he realized that's what he was doing. He was scaring the crap out of himself by making up a terrible future and then trying to be creative. Wow. And so all he did was not that. Like he didn't know what to do still, but he knew that was a bad idea. And of course, in that sort of space that opened up when he stopped using his creative mind to create terrible, scary futures, some ideas started coming. And he had an idea for, he was going to partner with a, a guy who ran a British pub and they were going to do a um, food delivery and supplies delivery because the pub had still access directly to suppliers. And then that that fell through, but he was kind of thinking, well, what does everybody need? Well, they they need support and they need food. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to do fresh vegetable delivery. Now he, no experience, no nothing, but it just sort of came to him and he was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. I wonder how I would do that. And then he started mucking about. He started calling farms and going, hey, how would I do this? And he, the, the first week um, he actually, th- that he was in business, he, he got customers, but he lost money because he, it hadn't occurred to him he would need to negotiate with the suppliers. So he just kind of went, <laughs> assuming that they'd give him some kind of a price break. And of course, they just saw an easy mark and charged him you know, retail for supplies, but he learned. So the next week he found different suppliers and, you know, he's been up and running now probably about three months, two and a half months. And the business is just growing from nothing simply out of not starting from terror. Mm. And honestly, that is probably the best advice I can give anyone is whether it's because of money or because of your health or because of the economy, your your creative potential, nothing will bury it faster than fear. And most of the fear is you predicting the future and acting as if it's real. I love that. Um, Wow. This has been packed with just, uh, yeah, I love conversations like this because I, you know, it's funny in my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to make you go through this very practical linear framework. And somehow we didn't end up there. But I think that in my mind, it probably gave you know me and probably a lot of other people a lot more to think about. Um, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Just clear seeing. Uh, I mean, this is an odd sideways example, but I, I remember I was teaching uh, in Mallorca and this beautiful hotel and arrived about an hour before sunset and it had a balcony that looked out over the ocean. And I was like, so excited to, to, to watch the sunset over the ocean. And I could not open the freaking door to the balcony. And I tried every, I, you know, tried, you know, kept playing with the key and trying all the different locking things and called down to the front desk. And, and the, the guy at the front desk said, well, have you tried unlocking it? Of course I've tried unlocking it and all. And finally they come up to the room and it was a sliding door. And I had been trying to pull it and push it. Now, once <laughs> I saw it, there was never a question about opening that door ever again right? That was never going to be an issue in my life ever again. It was unmistakable. And so what I am continually pointing people towards is what really moves the needle is usually not what you do. It's what you see. 
Mm. Because what you do comes from what you see. And clear seeing, that kind of clarity and freedom of mind, that opens us up to the infinite creative potential. And we can live in this flow simply by opening up the space for it, simply by seeing, oh, that's how it works. Got it. Oh, that's how gravity works. I don't have to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. That's how creativity works. Anything you see that's true about creativity means that, that your creativity will go through the roof because it's unmistakable. It's obvious. Well, okay, I'm scaring myself. That doesn't help. Oh, I'm pressuring myself. That doesn't help. Oh, I'm thinking about this too much. That doesn't help. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been incredible. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Well, michaelneal.org is my sort of playground on the web. And then uh, my daughter's got me into Instagram, and I do a lot of stuff on Instagram at Michael Neal Catalyst. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.